postcards from the New Testament, these one-chapter books. We did the book of Jude last week. We did the book of uh, Second John a couple weeks ago. And I was praying about where the Lord wants us to go this week. And obviously with the uh, Christmas holiday coming up, next week the Christmas program, and the week after that, one more Sunday before Christmas, we were going to probably stop and talk a little bit about the time we stopped to celebrate the birth of Christ. And as I was going through this, I was kept going back to the book of Matthew. Just reading the birth story there, reading the birth story in Luke. And the Lord has kind of laid it on the heart here. Hey, just go into Matthew. Because what's going to happen today as we start this, the next couple of lessons are all going to be out of the book of Matthew here. It's a great time to teach you just to get into the story of Christ and Christ's birth. And the best place to start with this is Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of God, David, the son of Abraham. The genealogy of Jesus Christ. So your translations may say the generation or the record. It's a really interesting word. It's that word that's used a few different ways in the Bible. And one way it's used to talk about a birth record, which is going on right here in Matthew chapter 1. It's also used to talk about a genealogy, which is going on here in Matthew chapter 1. But the word literally means Genesis. Isn't interesting? This is the Genesis of Jesus Christ, which takes us to its third meaning, which is the idea of the record of history or nature. And this is the beginning of history and nature, sometimes, if you will. Think about this. What we're going to read here in Matthew 1 is the birth record of Christ. It is the genealogy of Christ. But this event, this event that happened 2,000 years ago, was so amazing, it actually reset the way we do time. Now, I know the modernists don't use these terms anymore, but the idea of B.C., before Christ... This event was such a big deal, it reset time in history, if you will. And this is that, that genealogy, this generation, this record, this genesis of Jesus Christ. And what a great way to start. Look at the terms it gives here. Let's just break them down. The book of the genealogy, number one, of Jesus. That's a human name. That's a male. This was a man. The name of Jesus means Jehovah is salvation, or Jehovah is Savior. So we see his human side. But the next word, Christ, that means anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is one that has come down to save the earth from sins. He is God. Son of David, it shows that he has a claim to the throne as king. But he's also the son of Abraham, verse 1, which shows the fulfillment of prophecy in Genesis chapter 22, where God told Abraham, it's through your descendants, the earth will be blessed. Now, you've heard me say this before. Somebody newly gets saved from the things I was recommending is don't start the book of Genesis to start reading through the Bible. You're going to get a few chapters into it, it's going to get a bit overwhelming. I also usually don't recommend starting the book of Matthew. Now you may think, well, why not Matthew? Now imagine that you're either just newly saved, or imagine you are seeking the Lord, so you get to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 2, Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah, and his brothers, Judah begot Perez, and Sarah begot Tom. By about verse 3 or 4, you're like, oh my God. 
Because these things don't mean a whole lot to us. Now, rewind to 2,000 years. Here you are, a good Jew. It's about maybe 100, let's say. And you've heard about this Jesus of Nazareth that supposedly died and rose again. So you get a copy of this gospel according to Matthew. And so you sit down as a good Jew, and you read verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, immediately in your mind go, Christ, Messiah, the anointed one, son of David. As a Jew, you would stop and say, son of David, this guy, this guy has lineage to the king, the son of Abraham. Abraham, this guy, this guy here is, has lineage to Abraham. Verse 2, and Abraham, well, I would know who Abraham is. I would know who Isaac is. I would know who Jacob is. And these words would just come off the page. And 2,000 years ago, as I'm reading this as a Jewish man, this chapter 1 would say, wait a second. This Jesus fulfills every obligation to be Savior and King. This Jesus it is a Jew, lineage of David. He's God. He's man. He's got everything. And so when I get to verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations from David into the captivity in Babylon, or 14 generations and from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. I would stop after that thing. I'd probably put the scroll down and say, I just read how Jesus can be God and man, king and savior. And be my boy. But for us, 2,000 years later, who's Perez? Who's uh, Amnadabah? Who's Nashon? Those names don't mean a whole lot to us. So we need to go back and figure out, why are these names in here? Now, I love genealogies in the Bible. I love those final epistles where they list everybody by name. Because God, through the Holy Spirit, stopped and said, I want this name put in here and written for all history to be recorded. Now, why are they in here? If you come to us with on Wednesday nights, we just start the book of Second Chronicles. Excuse me, First Chronicles. First Chronicles, the first nine chapters are all genealogies. The first nine chapters are all genealogy. And it's fascinating to get in there and say, Lord, why is this person mentioned? So as I'm reading through this now, what do I get out of these names? Well, verse 2, I see Abraham. He's a liar. Verse 2, I see Jacob, whose name literally means deceit. He's a liar. He's a thief. He had multiple wives. Verse 2, I see Judah, who sold his brother into slavery. He also went with the prostitutes. We'll get into that in a little bit. Jump ahead, verse 6. I see David, who was a murderer, adulterer. He also had multiple wives. Verse 6, I see Solomon. Multiple wives doesn't even give that guy credit. 700 wives, 300 concubines. Now I'm up to this, some of these kings here. Verse 9, Ahaz. Ahaz was so evil that he brought idolatry to Israel. He went to Assyria, saw their temple, saw how they worship. He said, hey, I like that. He came back to Israel and said, let's copy our temples if you like your temple. Then you get to Manasseh, and verse 10, Manasseh was so wicked, so evil, God says, I, I can't do this anymore, Judah. I have to judge you. So evil, so wicked. So what do I see as I go through these people? This is what I see. I'm going to read out of Romans chapter 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They all together have become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb, and their tongues have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. That's a good thing. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And Romans 3.23 sums it up nicely. For all have sinned and fall short of glory of God. So God in his infinite wisdom, when he wanted to get a group of humans together and say, it's through your lineage... 
but I'm going to send the Savior. These are the winners that he picked. Liars, thieves, murderers, prostitutes, adultery, multi- I mean, it just the list goes on. This is actually a genealogy of grace. That these are the people the Lord chooses to work with. And you know what? The truth is, I'm looking at you guys, it hasn't changed much, you know, in a couple thousand years, right? This is us. And it's even go a little bit deeper. Because in this genealogy, there's five women mentioned. That's huge. Once again, go back in time 2,000 years ago. From a typical Jewish perspective, no one cared about women. So for there to be five women mentioned in this genealogy, there's something God is trying to say. So what women did he choose? What are the, the A-listers here that he said I want to talk about? The first one, verse 3, is Tamar. Now Tamar is found in Genesis 38. Now the background behind Tamar is this. We just talked about this Wednesday for somebody who heard this. Tamar married one of Judah's sons. Judah had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. So she married the first son, Ur. We don't know what Ur did, but the Bible says that he was wicked, and the Lord judged him. So Ur is gone. So according to Jewish law, she now marries the second son, Onan. We know what Onan did. He didn't want to be a father, so he was killed. So now he's got one son left, Shelah. So what Judah says to Tamar is this, hey, Shalom's a little bit too young, wait till he's a little bit older, when he's a little bit older, I will give him to you as your husband. Time goes on, and he never gives Shalom to Tamar. Now maybe Judah's sitting here saying, I don't know what this gal does, but my boys dropped my flocks. So Tamar has this great idea. She decides that she's going to go alongside the roadside, Genesis 38, dress up like a prostitute, and then when father-in-law Judah passes by, she'll seduce him get pregnant by him, and have a child. And that's what she does. Guess what? She's in the lineage of your Savior. That's one of the women he wanted to use. A woman who would dress up like a prostitute to get a child. Now, let's just go one step further, because now you go to Rahab, and verse 5, Rahab is just a prostitute. That's what she does. And she's in the lineage of God. And we can even go one step further, look at verse 5, we have Ruth mentioned. Now we can't pick on Ruth, right? Ruth and Boaz is one of the greatest love stories in the Bible. But you forget that Ruth is a Moabite. Moabites are Gentiles. Moabites were so despised and so hated that God made the rule that no Moabite could come into the temple area of Israel for ten generations. That's how despised and hated they were. And guess what? There's a Moabite in the lineage. And then we get verse 6, she doesn't even get a name. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. That's Bathsheba. Get on true. Think of this. We picked on the men pretty good. Look at the women. A gal that dressed up like a prostitute acted like one. One who was a prostitute. One who was a Moabite that was despised and hated. And one who was an adulteress. This is the lineage of Jesus. And it's not even the lineage of Jesus. These are the people that God through the Spirit wanted recorded for all time. To say, this is where he comes from. Because God likes to deal with grace. And he likes to take these people that the world would despise and look at and say, we want nothing to do with. He says, no, I am really good at picking up broken pieces. I am really good at being a God of second chances, third chances, fourth chances, fill the way. I am really good at forgiveness and grace. Remember these verses I mentioned a lot out here. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, says this. It says in Peter that God is patient and long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. That's why the Lord still used these people. These evil, awful people, just like you and I, He still wants to use today. 
because he's a God of grace. So let's pick the worst one, Manasseh. Can you go with me to 2 Chronicles 33? 2 Chronicles 33. The man that was so wicked that God had to say, Judah, I can't even do it. Manasseh. 2 Chronicles 33. There is no one who does good, no, not once. But all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. But numerous. Second Chronicles 33, let's read a little bit about Manasseh's resume. Verse 1, Second Chronicles 33, it says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. Longest reign of any king in Judah. Verse 2, but he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places, which Hezekiah's father had broken down, and raised up altars for Baals, and made wooden images, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. So he built these high places, and high places were up on hills. The simple idea is this, they wanted to get as high as they could to be closer to their so-and-so God. So they're building these false altars, these false places of worship. They brought in Baal again, verse 4. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, shall my name be forever, verse 5. He built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. So you walk into the temple, Manasseh set up altars of worship to false gods in the courts. He sets up false gods of worship right there in the temple area. Verse 6, he also calls his sons to pass through in the fire of the valley of the son of Hinnom. Now, what that's talking about there, they pass through the fire. Sometimes you may see this phrase in the Bible of a pass their sons through the fire of Moloch. What they would do is they would take these statues of Moloch, and the statues would have the arms out like this. And they would heat those arms up as hot as they possibly could. And then you'd place your firstborn child on the arms. And they would be burned to death. Because it's basically saying, I love this God so much, I'm willing to sacrifice my child when I first born. And in some cultures in this area, what they would do also is you would take your firstborn son and you would kill him and you would place the body in the wall of your business to say, look, God, small g, I am so willing to sacrifice to you. Bless my business. Here is my child. That's what this guy started doing. He practiced Hussein, verse 6, used witchcraft and sorcery, consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image, the idol which he had made, and the house of God, which God had said to David, the Solomon's son, and this house, and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen, out of all the tribes of Israel, I'll put my name forever. He sets up an image right there in the temple. So Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. This is how evil this guy is. He's part of the lineage. He's part of the genealogy. Because God's a God of goodness. Why? Look at verse 10. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. They would not listen. Alrighty, moms, dads, grandmas, grandpas, friends, aunts, uncles, you may have a loved one who is a Manasseh. They're not listening, they don't care, and when you thought they could not do any more evil than what they're doing, there's a whole other level of evil. You're crying out to the Lord for them. God speaks to them, verse 10, but they will not listen. What has to happen, verse 11? Therefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Syria, which took Manasseh with books, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him off to Babylon. So he's now taken away in chains, verse 12. Now when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord 
known as God, and he humbled himself greatly before the God of his father. The affliction got his attention. Keep your hand here in 2 Chronicles 33. Pull up here real quick to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Remember that phrase that we just read. Just read. Now, when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his father. When he was in affliction, he cries out to God. How does the Lord use affliction? Look at Psalm 119, start in verse 65. Verse 65 of Psalm 119. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The proud have forged a lie against me, but I will keep your precepts from your heart. Your heart is as fat as grease, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I have been afflicted. Look at that verse one more time, verse 71. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. The psalmist is saying affliction is good. Affliction gets my focus back on you. Affliction was used to get my heart back where it's supposed to be. If you have a loved one who is not where they're supposed to be with the Lord, and they are in the Manasseh territory, sometimes the most loving thing you can do is pray affliction on them. Let the Lord get a hold of their heart. What had to happen to Manasseh? He'd be bound with hooks and fetters and chains, taken off to Babylon. But in his affliction, he cries out to God, verse 13, and prayed to him, and he received his entreaty, heard his supplication, brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom, that Manasseh knew the Lord was God. This evil king, the most evil king that lived, now becomes saved. Now, before you believe this, as the term goes, this is some type of jailhouse faith. No, no, no. Verse 14. He starts doing kingly things, like taking care of his country. Verse 14. After this, he built a wall outside the city of David, on the west side of Gihon, in the valley as far as the entrance of the fish gate. This enclosed old foe, and he raised it to a very great height. Then he put military captains in all the fortified cities of Judah. So now he's acting like a king. Now what else does he do in verse 15? He took away the foreign gods and the idols of the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. He cast them out of the city. He also repaired the altar of the Lord, sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it, and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. See, that's grace. God loved him so much, he wanted to put him in books and chains, take him to Babylon to get his attention. And God loves you so much, he will afflict you to get your attention. He loves everybody so much, he will afflict them to get their attention. So often, when we have this loved one that's not saved, we pray and desperately not to want them to go through affliction. You know, it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance, and that's true. But when I hear a lot of people talking in their testimonies, it is the affliction that got their attention that made them cry out to the Lord. And what you see with Manasseh, this evil king, is that affliction that got his attention and made him cry out to the Lord. See, when we read this genealogy, it is a record of Christ's birth, it is a record of genealogy, it is a record of time. We see the man, Jesus, who is God, Christ, the anointed one, the son of David, claimed to the throne, son of Abraham, fulfillment of prophecy, and you see this whole list of sins. This list of sinners God loves. No, we even picked on Rahab, but to give the full story, Hebrews 11 says that Rahab was a woman of faith. James 2 says that Rahab had good works, because the Lord got a hold of Rahab's life. You see what the Lord does. I 
tell you, this is a picture of us people. God's grace working in sinners to bring us to where we need to be. And what a beautiful picture that is. Now, we didn't mention the last woman mentioned in the genealogy in verse 16. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. Now, it's kind of interesting in verse 16. That phrase, whom, that phrase, whom, is a singular word, and it's also feminine, meaning it only can refer to Mary. Jesus is the son of Mary, not Joseph. So as Joseph mentioned, well, we'll get into this more here than both in the next few weeks, but Jesus also had a claim to the throne of David, and that comes through Joseph's line. But he is Mary's child. And how does this happen? Verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she found she was with child of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. So you have Mary and Joseph here, who are betrothed. Now we need to talk a little bit about the way marriages happened a couple thousand years ago. It's a three-step process to get married. The first step of getting married was you got engaged. And this could really happen at any time. The bride and groom could be extremely young. And they would have an arranged marriage and say, you're now engaged. So... One family has a boy, and then the next family beside them, the neighbor has a girl, they're very close in age, they kind of play together, so at the age of four or five, the parents get together and say, hey, our kids are going to get married. Let's work out the deal right here. So now they're engaged. So you're engaged. So the next step after engagement was called now being betrothed. And this would happen now when you're getting old enough to get married. So as you go through this story of the birth of Christ, please remember, you're dealing with people that could have been young as 14 or maybe 15, 16, 17, 18. How many hours will work that? See, so often when they envision Joseph, what do we envision? It's a good-looking man, mid-30s, always has a great beard. You ever notice that? Joseph always has a great beard. Mary's always wearing light blue, you know that. And so, no. These guys could have been as young as 14, maybe 16, 17. So now they're betrothed. Now, betrothed, you're considered husband and wife. Now, you do not live together. You have not been one with each other yet, but you are a betrothed. And the way the betrothal could only be broken is literally through a divorce. So what happened is for this about a year, you're betrothed, and you live separately, but you're getting everything around for the wedding. But you are considered husband and wife, according to the law, according to all the rules. And so when Mary comes to Joseph, it's during this time that they are considered husband and wife. And that's why when it says in verse 19 that he wanted to put her away secretly, for them to end this betrothal, they would actually have to go through a divorce proceeding, which means you would have to have witnesses. So when he says, let's do this secretly, what he's really saying is, let's get the minimum amount of people we have to and just, and just get this behind us. Now why? Put yourself in Joseph's position. You've known Mary for as long as you can remember, probably. You've been engaged since you were kids. I mean, there was no question you were going to marry Mary. Mary's going to marry Joseph. This is not like, hey, we met at school at 14. No. You have lived together. Your families have known together. As you're six, seven, eight, nine years old, playing with each other, yeah, that's the girl I'm going to marry. That's the way it was. Now, obviously, there's something about Mary that was good and pure because the Lord also used her. So now put yourself in Joseph's position. This girl you've known for a whole life that has been decided you're going to marry, she shows up at your house. 
He says, I'm pregnant. What do you think? Don't worry, it's God's. What? Yeah, don't worry, Joseph, it's God's. Okay, you're pregnant, but you're pure, but it's God's, and I'm going to be stepdad to God and the Messiah. Yeah. And you're 15, 16 years old trying to figure this out. That's why it says in verse 20, while he thought about these things, that word thought is a very interesting word, it means to just keep turning and turning and turning. What is going through Joseph's mind? The girl he's known forever that he was going to marry, and they're betrothed, which means they're in that final year, they're in preparations of getting married, just came and told him that she's pregnant with the child of the Holy Spirit that was going to be the Messiah. That's a lot to think about. But he's a good guy. Verse 19. He's a just man. Some of your translations, a good man, a faithful man. He doesn't want to make a big deal out of this. Throw away secretly. Think about what he could have done. He could have brought her before the whole elders and said, she's pregnant. She's pregnant. The girl I'm betrothed to is pregnant. And if you go back and read the law, there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens after that, and it's not great. He says, I, I don't want to do this. I just want to, I want to put her away secretly. But obviously, he also didn't because verse 20, he keeps thinking about it. He keeps thinking about it. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. And you know my point? Anytime it says, do not be afraid, what does it mean? It means Joseph was afraid. Because why else would God have to tell him, do not be afraid? What is going through Joseph's mind? Okay, I, I can divorce her and then do it secretly, and we just move on. I can, I can divorce, divorce her, and she can be accused of all this other stuff because she's pregnant, and then awful things can happen to her. Or I can stay with her, and what? I'm going to be the stepdad to God? This is what he's thinking of. I mean, imagine the thoughts, the fear, the worry, the anxiety. Do not be afraid to take to you Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth the Son, and she'll call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord to the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So Joseph gets the dream. It's going to be a boy. Calls his name Jesus. He's the Messiah. God with you. Joseph is going to be okay. That's a lot. I don't think Joseph gets enough credit when it comes to the Christmas story, right? This man, if you're going to think of a word for Joseph, I want you to think of this word. As we go through the Christmas story over the next few weeks, the word is obedience. This man, every time you see him, is just obedient to what God is asking him to do. This look right here in verse 24. Then Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took from his life. He did not know until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. After she had Jesus, they had other children. The Bible makes that clear. James and Jude, we just talked about Jude last week. But he was obedient. Not only obedient in this, because next week, as we get into more of the life of Joseph and Mary, Joseph has a dream. Hey, take Jesus to Egypt. Joseph has another dream. Hey, take him to Nazareth. Joseph is obedient. Mary was chosen, but Joseph was also chosen for a purpose. Because Joseph had to be quite the guy to be able to handle this. So as you read about him having this child and going to Egypt, you're dealing with two teenagers. 
that God is appearing to Joseph in dreams, and Joseph is obedient every time. It reminds me of the verse in the book of James, be a doer of the word and not a hearer of the word. Churches filled today are filled with people that are hearers of the word and not doers of the word. There's a lot of times when we hear, but we don't do. But you see right here, Joseph, as he was willing, he was obedient, and he did. And as the Lord appeared and as the Lord spoke to Joseph, Joseph was willing and obedient and did those things. That obedience, that's what Joseph is. Let's talk about this obedience for a little bit. Can you go with me to John 15? John 15. See, it's one thing for us to come to church or in our devotional time, read these passages. Oh, that's a good point. Mark it, underline it, memorize it, put up on our fridge, tell other people to do it. Unless we're obedient ourselves, unless we are a doer of the word, and not just a hearer of the word, what difference does it make? See, this Christmas holiday season, so often you hear these words, and one of the words you hear a lot about is joy. Right? Joy. And people want joy. They always talk about how depressing and discouraging this season is. So people want joy. Now, you've heard me describe the difference between joy and, and happiness. Happiness is circumstantial. You have a good day at work, you're happy. You had a good meal, you're happy. It's your birthday, you're happy. Okay, well, one of these days you're going to have a bad day at work, it's not your birthday, and your meal's going to get burned. You're not happy. Joy, dare I say, is happiness regardless of the circumstances. Joy is, no matter how my day goes at work, I have joy because of what the Lord has done for me. I have joy every day because of just what God has done for me. So we want joy, not happiness, because happiness is this up and down and up and down. And I shared with you before this point that I heard a pastor say, he came out and said, I'm not happy in my marriage. I'm not happy in my ministry. He goes, I have moments of happiness in my marriage. I have moments of happiness in my ministry. He goes, but what I am, I am joyful in my marriage, and I am joyful in my ministry. Because regardless of the circumstances, there's a joy of the Lord. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. So we want joy. So often in our, in our wording, we tell people, I just want you to be happy. I don't want you to be happy. Happy is temporary. I want you to be joyful. So where do we get joy from? Well, Jesus tells us, John 15, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may, be, may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Okay, that's the goal. I want my joy to be full. Well, how does my joy become full? Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you. So what things did he speak to me to help me have joy? Go back one verse, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jump back one chapter to chapter 14. Look at John 15, 14, verse 15. Jesus simply says, If you love me, keep my commandments. Do you want joy? Joy comes through obedience. Now, this is not obedience to earn salvation. Let's make this clear. This is not a work of, look what I've done. This is, Lord, I love you. Lord, I serve you. I believe your path is right. And so since your path is right, as I obey your path, your commandments, it's going to be joy. And this is really not that difficult to follow, right? I know from my own personal life, when I'm obedient to the Word, and obedient in prayer, and I'm obedient in devotions, and just obedient to God's will in my life, I have joy. When I'm not obedient to it, I do not have joy. I know that's not very deep, that's the best I got this morning. So, if you're obedient, there's joy. If you're not obedient, there's not. 
Because when you're not obedient to the Lord, you're walking in your own will, you're walking in your own plan, and you may have moments of happiness because the flesh can find moments of happiness, but you'll never have joy. So Jesus says, if you want joy, keep my commandments. James said, don't just be a hearer of the word, be a doer of the word. And what do we see in Joseph's life? We see a man who was obedient, and we see a man that was devoted to following what God asked him to do. Like I said, we don't find out a lot about Joseph. Really, after Matthew chapter 2, he has one brief appearance with at the temple when Jesus is 12, and then we don't hear about him again. Most people believe that Joseph died probably early, and so therefore when Mary, excuse me, Christ uh, was on the cross, Mary was probably a little at the time, but we don't know for sure. But the verses we have of Joseph is him being obedient. That's the word for him. What does he get to do? He gets to raise Jesus. Verse 21, he will save his people from their sins. Verse 23, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Speaking of simplicity, I look at those verses, verse 21, and I look at verse 23, Emmanuel, and I really want to make some deep point on that. And God's like, now I made it as simple as possible. What does Jesus do, verse 21? He saves you from your sins. Who is he? Verse 23, he's Emmanuel, God with us. Well, when I was preparing this message, I was like, what does Emmanuel mean? I'm really trying to study it. It just means God with us. That's God's way of trying to make it simple. Guys, who's Jesus? Verse 1, he's Jesus, a human. He's Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. He's the son of David, who has claimed to be king. He's the son of Abraham, who's fulfilled in prophecy. What's he going to do, verse 21? He's going to save people from their sins. Why, verse 23? Because he's literally God with us. It's just how simple it is. We take things and we make it so completely complicated. And it's really not. Why do we stop and why do we celebrate Christmas? Because it's the time to celebrate Jesus who saves people from their sins. And to celebrate this idea of God coming down and being with us. And who is he with? Well, read verses 2 through 16. He's with a whole bunch of awful people. And guess what? Today, he's still with a whole bunch of awful people. Because that's the beauty of grace, and that's the beauty of mercy. As that Jesus comes to save us from our sins, and he is Emmanuel, God with us. He is Jesus. Jehovah is salvation. Jehovah is Savior. And the whole point of Matthew 1 is to just lay the foundation to say, this is who Jesus is. As a man, as a God, and to know his calling. From the beginning, the calling was... Save people from their sins because he's God with us. Now, what do we take from this? Because we talked about not just being a doer of the word, but being a doer of the word. Well, it's a couple of things I just want to throw at you here. Because God asked you to be obedient to something you haven't been. Let's just talk about that one first. Joseph was obedient. He's obedient in chapter one, he's obedient in chapter two. You see this obedient. Is there something the Lord has laid on your heart that you know what you're supposed to do? You just haven't done it. Are you a hearer of the word, or are you a doer of the word? How's your joy? Because your joy will be full when you're keeping his commandments. Because you're saying, Lord, I'm walking in the path you give me, and that path you give me is the best path for me. Those are the first questions that you ask. Question number two. Do you really understand verse 21? He will save his people from their sins. Do we really get that? That, you know, and let's just let's just go right down to it. That there's a heaven and there's a hell. 
And the only way to get into heaven is through Jesus Christ. See, I have sinned. You have sinned. We've all sinned. I'm a sinner by birth. I'm a sinner by choice. I'm a sinner by this world. And in the currency needed to pay off that debt of sin that I owe, I can't pay. Christ is the only one that has that currency to do it. And that currency was his death. There had to be a sacrifice for sins. That's the way God has established it all the way back to Genesis. Somebody has to die for the sins, and Jesus is the one that can do that completely and take care of it once and for all. So when he comes to save people from their sins, that is what we're here to celebrate. It's this idea of Jesus says, I will take care of your sins for you. And then what we really do is just respond to that. Lord, I want my sins taken care of. I want to be free from the slavery of sin. I want, verse 23, God with us. I want to be with you, Lord. So that is what we're here today to talk about. And I don't think I would be doing my spiritual responsibilities if we did not make that clear to you. And so what I want to do with this is we get ready to finish. My heart you come forth for the final song. song. Rich and I will be right up there in these chairs. And if you have something that you are, are praying about and obedience is difficult for you and you need prayer, come on up. Rich and I would love to pray with you. If you hear this idea of he will save people from their sins and you say, I want that, I need that, come on up and we'd love to get a chance to pray with you. If you see this idea of God with us, Emmanuel, I want that. I don't want to be on my own anymore. I want the Lord with me. What does that mean? Come up and we'd love to get a chance to talk. So if we're talking with people, if we're praying with people as they get done with the song, Marv will close out the word of prayer. We'll hopefully catch you guys next week. Don't forget Christmas program at the 10 a.m. service. 8.30 service will be this regular message. Same message at both. But I tell you, what it really comes down to is being obedient to what he's called us to do and realizing we are here to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. I love this quote real quick from C.S. Lewis. The Son of God became a man to enable men to become the sons of I love that. The Son of God became a man to enable men to become the sons of God. What a great point that is. Let's pray. Lord, if we just get ready to close out and just worship. Lord, if there's someone here that needs prayer, we would be available to them. Lord, if there's someone here that is just, that their mind is revolving around who you are, speak to their hearts who you are. You are Emmanuel, God with us. You came to save us from our sins. Thank you, Lord. We love you. We praise you. As we just go forward these next few weeks, help us always keep our heart, mind, and soul focused on you and all that we say. We lift this up in your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.